if you are sitting at the governance token level, like you said, Santiago, Santi, uh, is that uh, is that um, that that there's some value in being able to govern. What's the value in being able to govern if you're not generating some slice of the fees? This episode is brought to you by Core, the brand new non-custodial wallet that offers a seamless and secure experience on Avalanche. You'll hear more about Core later in the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup. We skipped the roundup the last two weeks. We had so many good guests. We were uh, getting them out, but we are back with another roundup. And because we missed the last two roundups, we brought on a really special guest. We've got Brett Winton, Director of Research at ARK Invest. Uh, Brett, I've been following him for years, reading his stuff for years. This is the first time we've ever actually spoken. Brett joined ARK in early 2014. Uh, and has worked alongside Kathy Wood for almost 15 years since their time at Alliance Bernstein. Brett, welcome to Empire. Welcome to our weekly roundup, my friend. Uh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, Santi, I'm, the first question is going to you here. Today, here's the agenda for today. Here's what I want to talk about. We want to, I want to talk about markets. I want to get everyone's take on just what's going on. It feels like we are back. Risk is on. Uh, ETH is pumping, Bitcoin's going up, things are good. I want to get your guys' take on what's going on there. There's some funny stuff happening in crypto with like narratives are coming back because price is coming back. Things like Aptos and Sui. We've got the L1 chasers are coming back. Uniswap, thinking about the fee switch. Lido is ripping on the back of a treasury proposal. Coinbase, some interesting stuff going on there. And then there's some other news, a lot of uh, variant just raised 450. Some other big news I want to talk about. I want to get um, Brett's take on some real world assets and uh, policy stuff that he's looking at. But Santi, the first question goes to you. You just bought a home. Uh, I think you're comfortable with me saying that. Uh, if not, we'll bleep it out. But you were looking at a fixed versus a floating mortgage. And I'm curious mm -hmm. how you made that decision. Yeah, I basically went floating. I thought there was a, a lot priced in um, on, on sort of the fixed. And I felt that uh, this was before yesterday, of course, but I, I felt that it was just too too priced in. And so I decided to go variable the optionality of fixing it at some point. Um, and yeah, I just kind of uh, went with variable. Uh, of course, none of this financial advice. And if you're <laughs> considering buying a home, you know, you should you should do your own thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I wanted to like the idea of paying upfront, like in fixing for a 10 year. I sort of played it and said, okay, I'd rather take the, the sort of time value of money and like paying up front on the 10 year was just a little too expensive, I thought. And, you know, I felt that uh, at some point markets like rates were going to probably come down a bit. And so I just kind of decided to play that. Um, so I may look like a genius. I may look like an idiot. Who knows? I mean, it's still, we're still on very record low interest rates. And so I, I feel like it's still pretty compelling. Um like if you have a 10, 30 year view. Um, so anyways. You're a gambling man. Brett, what do we think? Santi make the right move or the wrong move? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think directionally the right move. I think that the, at least from our perspective, it's pretty clear that Fed is reaching the end of its, its um, at least marginal like tightening cycle. And so um, I, I think there is, there is still a lot of investable assets out there that are, holding out because of fears about risk. And if you think about like broadly what's happened from a macro perspective is 
a lot of the assets that we're focused on and, and you all are probably focused on are so sensitive to flows uh, that kind of the marginal interest rates have been just slamming the assets around. And and over the medium term, markets play a weighing game. Over the short term, they play a voting game. Uh, and so all of our markets have been subject to the voting game, uh, which opens up pricing inefficiency for, for the weighing game. Within the interest rate context, like the you know, Alan Greenspan, I think, said that uh, there's a, a giant savings glut and it was causing all these problems. That's the reason there's a savings glut is because we have this insane idea that we're all going to retire at the age of 65. We're going to stop producing at the age of 65, but we're going to live, you know, 30 or 40 years past that without producing, but still consuming. And so everybody needs to like build up their balance sheet to accommodate the fact that they're supposed to be able to still pay to you know live and eat and and travel um, for some like absurd longevity risk that's even getting longer uh, 65 used to be the retirement age because that's when people on average died <laughs> now it's now it's like stop working and keep living for 40 years uh, and so that means you have to build up this big like savings excess above what you are earning in income uh, so that you have something to spend down over time. And we're still, despite kind of like a multi-year kind of asset expansion, off sides of that. And so what that means is you still have kind of like people trying to save money and pump them into investable assets. And so, um, you know, I think over the essentially the demographics and, and would suggest that you're going to still have a lot of people buying yielding assets and it'll compress yields um, over time um, in a profound way. Uh, and, and we're not, that's not over because of this particular business cycle. That's going to continue. I just, before this podcast, I was reading uh, Howard Mark's latest memo. Um, it came out yesterday and it's really fascinating. I think he's one of the more clear headed kind of investors out there. And he references like Swanson, who was uh, headed, chaired the endowment at Yale and did some pretty interesting stuff like uh, investing in alternatives and before anyone really did. And it's a great read for anyone. I think uh, it's just like really good wisdom. It talks a little bit about Brett was saying, which is this idea of like, you know, we kept talking about this in the podcast, which is if you have a longer than kind of one year, like one year time horizon, you start seeing really good entry points um, in things that you like before really trying to time the market. Uh, and I felt like over the last couple of months, a lot of people were becoming macro experts and really opining on this stuff when the smarter guys were probably saying, look, we just don't know. And so it's not very wise to spend so much energy in the short term where rates are going to be, you know, next quarter or in a couple of quarters. I think, uh, you know, what we do best, I think, as investors just focusing on long-term kind of thesis and trends and then just invest behind that. Um, so anyways. It's a good read. We we'll, should link it in the, in the pod. Yeah. And I, I think just expanding on that, it's actually easier to underwrite the medium term horizon than it is the short term horizon. Think of how competitive it is. The, the kind of whole hedge fund game is basically I'm competing on every three months. I'm paying my staff based on one year's performance. And so all of the incentive is shoved into this very kind of tight band of of potential return, which means that, you know, as an individual, like, are you really going to outcompete someone whose entire full-time job with all of the data resources at their um, disposal is to to beat that three or six month window? It, it seems unlikely. You're better off 
playing over a time horizon where it's it's easier to underwrite the positions and then you're not in competition with with the maximally incentivized sharks uh and 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 it's it's actually you can your investment thesis can be much more stable over the medium term you can do like a large amount of work on a specific asset to understand what it's likely to be worth over the medium term and then and then place your bet in a appropriately sized for for your assessment of your edge uh, having to recycle that every month or every three months it's incredibly hard work like why subject yourself to that as an individual yeah yeah that the the, uh, the Howard Marks piece was really good he said we can't know much about the short term if we do know a lot about the short term if we have an opinion about the short term we can't have much confidence in it. And even if we do have confidence, we reach a conclusion, there's really not much you can do in the, in the very short term, right? So in so if you take all those three things combined, we really shouldn't care about the, uh, the short term. I have a question then for both of you guys. When you look at how crypto funds are set up, uh, one thing that's interesting about crypto is it's made all these illiquid assets in the private markets liquid from day one. Uh, which everyone says, you know, in crypto is really good, but it actually has this like detrimental impact. If you look at how VC funds are structured, there really aren't like many private only illiquid VC funds. There are all these kind of quasi VC fund meets hedge fund because they've allocated to these liquid tokens. So Brett, like does that, when you look at these crypto funds and how they're set up, these VC funds are almost operating as hedge funds. Does that have a detrimental impact because they become more short-term focused? It could. I mean, I think that you would argue that more liquidity and transparency on essentially asset values conceptually, for one thing, it's inevitable uh, and it's good from a like efficient markets perspective. Um, and I think there is business pressure, there's media pressure um, that forces people to operate on a shorter time horizon than they actually rightfully should on behalf of their clients. So everything that we've done inside ARC is actually to to expressly say we're not going to respond to that pressure to to insulate kind of the analyst and investment team from that pressure um to to underwrite our positions on 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 five year windows um to do top down work so that we know that those five year valuations are are well anchored uh and i mean i think that like let's go in, in another direction. The private markets, you mentioned Swinson, you know, there has been flood of capital into venture capital for, for a long time. And the returns have looked great. And they not only look great to those investors in venture capital, they look like they're just up and to the right without bumping around, which is the ideal asset. It's like, oh my gosh, it just generates returns and it's not volatile at all. If you daily mark those portfolios, the volatility would freak those investors out, Right. And I think it's inevitable that those portfolios move towards daily marking. There are more liquid secondary markets for private exposures. Um, crypto assets broadly, like what are those going to do? They're going to securitize everything. They're certainly going to like serve as a function to securitize all of these assets that weren't otherwise securitized. And so kind of like your ability to see marks on whatever you hold, like what is the value of your floating rate mortgage uh, on a daily basis? You don't know now, but you could trade out of that into a fixed rate at some point in the future, like very efficiently, uh, which means you'll be getting like a daily mark on this is the value of that choice. Uh, and, and so I think that the um, how um, investors insulate themselves from that transparency pressure 
becomes increasingly important. And so in a, in a crypto asset strategy, you can, um, yes, have like the ability to trade, but then have your investors be locked up for some amount of time so that you're not under this, suddenly you're getting the call every week, hey, what's going on with this thing that's down 25%? I mean, I think that there's ways that you have to intentionally structure your business to prevent you from becoming subject to the media, political, um, client pressure cycle that ultimately disserves your clients. Yeah. Oh, no, Brett, obviously, uh, Arc um, has been kind of a pioneer in really, I think, producing some of the best research and making kind of really bold claims about the future. And, and in many cases, it's been right. You know, I think, uh, you know, everyone is probably familiar with Kathy and, and, and uh, you know, Chris, who ended up leaving and started a placeholder. But what's your, like, you know, would love to get your take on what's like the latest thinking on crypto internally on the firm. I mean, I'd be remiss not to say you guys punched out of Coinbase. Um, you know, that might be because of pressure or flows or, you know, have you changed? I'm curious on that backdrop, like what's the latest thinking on, on, on crypto year or the firm? Yeah, I mean, I think that the high level, like the innovation of Bitcoin introduced um, kind of true digital property rights ownership as something that could be possible. Uh, and and um, we think of like there's this whole, hey, Bitcoin's going to take over everything. Uh, and and then there's the actually, you know, smart contracts is everything. And then there's the people that want to define Web3 as comprising all of those things. And I disagree with that claim. I think that there are three simultaneous revolutions that were catalyzed by, by the introduction of Bitcoin. There's a money revolution and there Bitcoin is essentially positioned to win. And so then our expectation for the value of Bitcoin over the course of this business cycle hasn't changed because of you know what's happened uh, due to the voting machine pressure over the past 12 months. You know, it's still that over time it's going to win the money revolution and then that's, you know, conditional on like single digit adoption amongst a bunch of entities that hold money, uh, you end up with around a million dollars a coin. Then there's the financial revolution, which is uh, kind of um, encoded in the smart contracting space. And, and it's still massively interesting. And, and given what's happened in the market cycle, um, we think that the um, in some ways, like the DeFi protocols have demonstrated their importance and robustness in that there's uh, accepting UST Luna, which I would argue was transparently like a failed concept. The the you know all of the collateralized loans, all of the um, kind of liquidity um, um, protocols, all survived and actually gave us better insights as to the what was happening to the centralized firms, causing kind of the recognition of their failure to be accelerated and and actually kind of accelerate the deleveraging within the space in in a liquid way. Uh, and and so the um, we think Ethereum is well placed there, and that there's all kinds of assets like competing for kind of that level one um, smart contracting platform that will enable DeFi. And then there's everything that we categorize in Web three, which is more consumer facing NFTs, uh, and and it's how do you take digital ownership and, and transmit it into the consumer facing web, and, and what does that enable? So these are three things that can move at separate velocities and separate paces. I think the the intersection with Coinbase and, and entities that are trying to stay on the right sides of regulation is is really interesting and potentially challenging in that uh, if 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 the, the innovation is basically I can securitize everything on earth, I can securitize movie tickets. And so it means that I can own a movie ticket and uh, in that 
has at least collectible rights that are ongoing for that movie ticket. Uh, and maybe they're going to airdrop me ongoing Marvel merchandise because it was the premiere to you know some Marvel movie. Uh, and so suddenly that's securitized. Does that mean I have to, you know, the, the AMC has to register with the SEC in order to sell me that movie ticket? Like this is a hard you know, this is how we end up having to give our social security number in order to buy like an action figure, right? And so clearly that's not the solution we're going to end up in, but there is so much regulatory uncertainty that it's hard to say how it's going to break for the entities trying to provide those services today. Yeah. Um, so the, the like our view on like, what is the next 10 years of crypto assets hasn't materially changed. Like, where does the cash flow accrue to the mm -hmm. companies trying to provide the services and and compete for kind of the 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 business opportunity that that goes alongside those crypto assets? It you know we're assessing that weekly. Yeah, I'm curious um, how you've found crypto to be investable from an institutional perspective. This is something that you know we we keep hearing the institutions are coming and there's more infrastructure we still don't have. You know, an ETF. Uh, nonetheless, um, you guys perhaps have been more on, on willing to take these kind of jumps and, and hoops, but I'm curious uh, how much of that has evolved and how easy it is for managers to, to allocate to the asset class. I mean, I, managers can allocate their solution providers today. We have solutions that we can provide to um, allocators to, to get themselves efficient exposure to crypto assets. And, um, and I think it is the right move for anybody that has long-term liabilities to uh, get access to a long duration asset. And if you think like Bitcoin is essentially an infinite duration asset. Uh, and, and so um, I think that like they should be. And um, the financial system is a system that charges money from clients to take risk on their behalf and then is business structured in a way where it tries to take as little risk as possible. Uh, and so, you know, institutional allocators uh, in their job is to take risk, but the meta job they have is to not get fired and to not cause clients to come back and say, hey, why did you do this? Uh, and so that's the the kind of battle in in um, in getting real institutional money into crypto assets and and even Bitcoin, which I think is probably the most understandable from a like what it does and the potential it has in the world um you in conversations we've had with institutions there's um you know a very kind of steep learning curve of of what it is and why it might be interesting and then once they cross that then they get into well can we do this from a regulatory perspective how mm -hmm. you know they have to do all the operational due diligence you know what happens to at, it doesn't doesn't help when like some underlying kind of infrastructure providers in the ecosystem suddenly look unstable. Uh, and so I think that I remember in March, we had someone who's on the institutional side, say March of 2020, say, oh, the drawdown here has set back kind of the institutional clock by by 18 months. Well, if that's really true, then then this most recent kind of um unraveling and deleveraging of the system has probably set back the institutional uh, clock, I don't know, 36 months. Um, so, and, and if, if the institutions don't get there first, in some way, that's a better outcome because it allows people in developing countries that are trying to protect themselves against, um, you know, 
uh, inflation and it allows like more individuals to get access to the assets before the institutional money comes in. Uh, so from a kind of actually distribution of the holder base, uh, it, it could be net better for the world. Uh, last week, the SEC announced insider trading charges against the former Coinbase PM and two others for allegedly trading ahead of new Coinbase asset announcements. And then the SEC said that nine of the 25 tokens that were kind of traded in that were securities. Then on Monday, the SEC is looking into whether Coinbase allowed its US-based traders to trade unregistered securities. Obviously, Coinbase is very adamant that they don't list securities, that they're working with the SEC directly. How much of your guys' decision to offload 1.4 million shares of Coinbase was because of regulatory reasons versus uh, maybe problems with the business model versus uh, there are obviously big competitors like FTX and Coinbase that, uh, and Binance that are pop that are getting stronger versus DeFi and like competitors like Uniswap. Like what can you, I, I don't know how much you could talk about it, but tell us maybe a little bit of the insights behind that decision. Sure. You have to think of um, our trading activity is happening within the context of other potential options where to put client money the so, opportunity cost of holding coinbase yeah stock. so yeah. so there's you know there 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 are other companies that have done poorly in the last week in addition to coinbase and so if kind of like two companies trade down by identical amounts and previously they were here and here in the portfolio and then we have a scoring system for our companies and uh if we're raising thesis risk on on coinbase for example um and then actually we haven't changed our scoring for this other company then that'll cause us to to swap our exposure from one into another. I think the the promise for Coinbase is to be essentially a vertically integrated financial service provider for all of these crypto assets. Um, there's a danger that the U.S. regulatory system could act in such a way that it punishes the best actor and then forces the activity onto entities that that are um, essentially have have arranged themselves to avoid the U.S. securities regulation system. Uh, and so um, if you think about competitive vectors to exchanges, there's like offshore exchanges, there's um, kind of DeFi as an interesting, you know, um, you know, potentially where all the activity gets shoved. Uh, and, and so within that context, if, if the SEC is showing that it's going to essentially dig in its heels uh, and, and try to uh, punish the best actor, so it hopes it has like um, kind of ramifying effects across the entire ecosystem, um, then it at the very least provides a, um, a lot of blocking and tackling that Coinbase's management team has to do to, to fend off that threat and to educate people as to, well, this is how um, these uh, assets should be treated. Um, but again, I, I think that the, the underlying issue here is we're going to securitize everything. So you can't have the 1933 securities law apply to everything. Like we cannot have movie tickets be deemed securities. It would be a crazy thing to do. And there are clear like business model opportunities in making movie tickets something that have ongoing value that are concert tickets where you get like a small percentage of the royalty rights from the documentary that was made of the concert that you happen to attend. Why shouldn't you? You were one of 10,000 participants that made that documentary what it was. Um, but if to do so, you have to, um, you know, uh, register with the SEC, then that business will never emerge. Uh, and, and so I think that, the, you know, recognizing that there can be a lot of friction taken out of digital ownership of things, and that that will make a lot of digital things 
look somewhat like securities and in some cases a lot like securities and that uh you know bill written in 1933 is not sufficiently expansive or particularly one that that doesn't you know prompt a rulemaking that acknowledges that these are different assets with different characteristics is could really set the us back I'm, i was having a discussion with someone um, who's not in crypto uh, more in traditional finance and we were talking about this kind of like how would you create a new kind of framework to categorize like okay it's not going to be called a security because if you call it a security you get like cornered into this weird like very difficult mess but you do need to have some sort of you know there's certain things about what means to be a security that I think would be applicable to, to, to crypto assets writ large, you know, this idea of information and access to information and fairness. And I think it doesn't apply to like a NFT of a movie ticket, if you will. But for other assets, I think there are certain components of that that are relevant, at least in my opinion. I'm curious if you if you were to kind of like talk to a regulator, like how would you imagine something like Ethereum or, or another crypto asset, Solana, if you will, like, what, how would you construct like this new category of securities for the today's age? You know what I mean, or not a security? I'm just curious. Well, I think a lot. You know, I don't think I can give you the perfect rule now, but a lot of the rules that have been written are designed by setting out like a category of kind of company that can do a certain thing. For instance, custody. Like, there a separate company has to custody the assets. Well, that's necessary, um, you know, and the way in which custody is written is not written as in like take care of private keys, right? It's like written back when you had, you know, paper stock certificates that you would have in a file drawer. Uh, and so if you continue to require there to be separate entities for different producing different functions, when the entire kind of um, transaction chain can be transparently seen and audited by the market participants, then that doesn't, it doesn't make conceptual sense why you would require all of these different entities that then results in kind of the slowness to settle in our existing financial system. So I think the, the um, like, what are the characteristics that are interesting about blockchains? It's like instantly auditable and instantly transferable. You know who owns what, when, exactly when they own it. And, um, and, and, and the, the, um, if the rules aren't amended to acknowledge that, then you're going to end up with a, with just an inefficient system, a, a system that's very costly to run and operate. And so then the activity and, and the businesses will move into geographies that facilitate a more transparent system. Like going back to your mortgage, if if like you as a US resident, in order to transfer out of that floating rate mortgage into a fixed rate mortgage, um, have to go back to your bank and go through the whole, you know, kind of refinancing process again. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it's like a very expensive, costly, legally burdensome, frictionful thing to do. But conceptually, you could you could get a DeFi contract that actually affects that switch for you instantaneously, much less expensively. Well, if that's available to people outside the U.S. but not available to people inside the U.S., that'll be bad for people in the U.S. And so, you know, um, the innovation and in security 
there's two things it comes with. It comes with increased efficiency and then leverage cycles that blow up a bunch of providers. That seems like that always happens no matter where we do it. Uh, and I think within um, kind of like DeFi and the intersection with DeFi and kind of the securities regulation, it's inevitable you'll end up with more leverage cycles. You know, I would hope that we continue to enable the leverage cycles to happen in a transparent and audible way rather than defining like, oh, this is the three entities that can provide custody for these assets. And so then and they get way offsides in some way that creates systemic risk. All right, folks, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche and Ava Labs. They have just dropped a new crypto wallet called Core. You're going to be hearing a lot about it over the coming months. You can now be one of the first to try it out. Here's the reason I'm excited to partner with them on Empire. Right now, crypto wallets and browser extensions, they feel clunky, they feel non-intuitive. That's why Ava Labs built Core. It's a free, non-custodial browser extension that gives Avalanche users a seamless and secure Web3 experience across the entire Avalanche ecosystem. Here are a few reasons to try Core. Here's what I'm experimenting with. Number one, Core has intuitive dashboards with a unified display for all of your NFT collections, all your crypto assets. You can execute asset swaps directly inside the wallet. It's a really nice experience. Uh, maybe you want to earn yield or borrow against your Bitcoin, uh, but you don't want to do it on one of those C5 platforms right now. Core's native bridging functionality makes it really easy to bridge your Bitcoin to Avalanche's robust DeFi ecosystem. Last but not least, Core makes on-ramping super easy. You can convert dollars to crypto right now using the MoonPay integration. Just takes a few clicks. Download Core today using the link in the show notes. It's really, really nice. Uh, if you are interested in the Avalanche ecosystem at all, you have to be using Core. Download Core using the link below. Now, let's get back to the show. I want to pivot this into actually a conversation about Uniswap, which might seem like a unrelated topic, but I think it is related because uh, the fee switch, uh, you turn on the fee switch, there's kind of this claim that uh, turning uh, the claim to protocol revenue could infer that uni is now a security. So just maybe a little background for folks who aren't aware, there's this long debate if protocol should take, and specifically Uniswap, should take a percentage of the LP fee. So Uniswap currently has three fee levels. You've got like 0.05%, 0.3%, and 1%. Right now, all the fees are distributed back to LPs. There's this debate if the protocol should take a percentage of those LP fees. Uh, if you look at the original docs from Uniswap, they do say it's possible that a, uh, I think it's like a five-bit fee would be turned on in the future. Um, there are two primary arguments for why the fee has not been turned on yet. A is maybe they just want to gain as much market share as possible in the early stages. The comparison people make is like, you know, just a lot of SaaS businesses or even like the Ubers and Lyfts and Amazons of the day. You don't focus on profit. You focus on just gaining market share once you have the market share, right? Ubers used to be five bucks in Manhattan. Now they're 50 bucks in Manhattan because they got the market share. The second uh, reason for maybe not doing it is the regulatory concerns. The concern being that a claim to protocol revenue could infer that uni is a security. Brett, I don't know if you guys at ARC uh, are, are mainly focused on ETH and Bitcoin and, and like Coinbase, or if you push further into the DeFi stack. But I'm curious to, I'd love to get your take on on this situation if, if you guys have been following it. Sure. I mean, I think at a very high level, we think of decentralized exchanges as potentially doing 15 trillion in volume by 2026, call it. Okay. So then if you imagine you're going to collect a, 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 you know, 50 basis points fee off of that, or a uh, sorry, a, a point, 
a five basis points fee off of that, right? Um, you know, then that translates into a meaningful revenue that then you could say, hey, that's going to be the yield off of, of Uniswap, depending on your expectation of share there. And suddenly it makes the, the, the token much easier to value. And it kind of reminds me of like the, the whole asset class is still emerging. There's still like people like Chris, when he was with us, he threw it, he decided, well, what about network value to transactions as a way to like measure the value of these assets? And there's reasons that's, you know, not a great measure, but at least it's some kind of measure that you can on a relative basis say, hey, what's going on here versus here? And, um, uh, you know, it used to be in the early days of equities, it's actually equities were just valued on dividend yield. I'm talking early, early days. Like every equity had to pay out dividends or else it wasn't really considered worth much. Nobody would buy for the, the capital appreciation and capital reinvestment. And then uh, at some point, there was a phase change where people realized, hey, if we let businesses kind of reinvest the capital into their business, then they can actually kind of grow their asset base um, more quickly. And so uh, we will value kind of the underlying equity at more than just the book value of the assets that, that underlie it. Uh, and so by by paying out a fee uh, for for Uniswap, it, it in some ways it can make it very easy to be like, oh, this is the value of this token, um, and um, kind of given expectations for growth and, and decentralized exchanges, you might argue that you still need to be in kind of like capturing liquidity mode. As in, there's going to be some point where there's a like one or two dominant decentralized exchanges due to network effects or de decentralized exchange protocols. Uh, and you would rather forestall kind of actually collecting that fee into treasury or distributing it to token holders for as long as possible to make sure you're positioned to like capture all those network effects. Uh, so that's like my high level kind of response to it. And then kind of, but then there's the interesting dynamic of like, can I drive up protocol value by actually feeding some of these call them dividends into the, into the protocol, which then um, kind of attracts more um, liquidity participants, even though they're accepting a lower fee. And, I, you know, I don't know what the right thing to do is, but I think it's fascinating. The number that you guys put, so you said 15 trillion by 2026 in decentralized exchanges? That's, yes, that's our okay. estimate. And today it's doing what, probably 100 billion roughly uh, a month? Multiply that by 12, you're looking at probably a trillion. So we grow by like 10 to 15 X. Yeah. Like ball, super very rough right. ballpark sizes. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Santi, do you have, uh, do you have thoughts on the, on the fee switch and, and Uniswap? I don't know if you've been following this closely. Well, full disclosure, I was an early investor, verify. Um, and so, you know, I'm biased of course, but, um, yeah, I think this has always been certainly something that I think a lot of funds, it would be interesting how they vote or if they abstain from voting. Um, just given the regulatory kind of sensitivity um, around around kind of turning on fee, then does that make uni a security or because you know this has been sort of the the governance token and conferring kind of governance rights is kind of the more regulatory kosher approach and has been for a while. Uh, obviously, sushi has had a fee um, kind of distributed to sushi holders and stakers. Um, but actually, like, there, there's a pretty interesting discussion that happened six months ago or perhaps more with Hasu that talked about this idea of, okay, the fees are accruing to a contract. Whether you're distributing that to holders is another thing, right? And so if you put that – if you kind of look at it that way, a lot of startups don't kind of issue a dividend even if they're profitable. Like high-growth companies reinvest, reinvest in growth 
the question is like those funds are not really kind of being used, right? They're just kind of there accruing is my understanding. I don't think like the Uniswap labs like is is using that to fund operations or, or what have you. Uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, but to my knowledge, it's just sort of accruing to this contract, admin contract. And so you're not doing that. Like, I guess those funds, like you could look at like the enterprise value of the protocol, if you will, and equity value. And then like, you know, there's big cash balance that is interesting. Um, but yeah, I think there there comes a time and a place for a company, if it's spewing out cash flow to distribute that to investors, if it doesn't have, um, you know, uh, a better better you know place to invest of course i'm using all these terms that are you know company and investors and i think when you hear that in in crypto it, it kind of screams security again we're back to this thing so i think it's going to be an interesting precedent around i'm looking at what our fund's going to vote on it meaning like especially paradigm and a16z are big holders of that maybe they're going to delegate that to you know some someone else and then you know let them kind of vote um but i think uh yeah, uh, as a. But even even if the fees accrue into the into a contract, it's like then the your right of governance over that contract certainly is has in, increased in value. Correct. Yeah. And and and, oh. and it's kind of like what again it gets back to kind of the I think uh, underlying security law question, which is you know what are we what are we really trying to restrict here, right? And Absolutely. and and it it's. You know, if kind of like it's open to operate on the protocol, you know, there's like a, it's very transparent what's going on. Um, and actually, insider trading laws apply regardless of whether or not anything's a security. The DOJ, you know, charged the the Coinbase people, you know, not having to say this was a security. It mm-hmm. was just, um, you know, a, basically committing fraud against uh, the end buyers of of the assets, right? And and so mm-hmm. I think that you know there there's it seems to me that there should be uh, <laughs> that that protocols trying to kind of like particularly on a like decentralized protocols trying to like make governance decisions on the basis of whether or not collecting this fee actually turns them into a security are are not going to be very satisfied with kind of the SEC's treatment of them regardless. It, it'll either be like, well, you're a security anyway or not. And I don't think it'll be on the basis of like this particular vote would be my guess. Not legal. Advice, I think you bring up a really good, you bring advice. up a really, yeah, I was going to say, I think you bring up a really good point, which is, I think we should focus on what what's the intent and what is the kind of the repercussion of whatever particular action. And I think if, if I'm a regulator and I've, you know, I've sort of emphasized this is where's the harm? being done. A, if, if there is harm being done, absolutely. I mean, I think you should focus on that and say, okay, there is, you know, is there a fair market, transparent market that allows people to kind of have the same level of kind of interactions you have in traditional markets where, you know, there are the SEC and Edgar and companies, there's a protocol and a process by which you publish information and a standard of quality that, you know, happens in these markets to give people a fair shot. I mean, I think that that is... Uh, Philosophically, I'm very much aligned with that. Where I, I think the the kind of regulators probably, I hope, and I think this is what they do is, is there harm being done um, by not updating certain laws or treating something that is very new, treating like innovation with archaic laws, like for instance the accredit accreditation kind of rules. 
so many people have been kind of on the sidelines, not being able to invest in things they might be knowledgeable, but because of this arbitrary definition that they're not accredited. And of course, there's been some changes recently, but you know, you you're sort of left wondering like how much like opportunity costs, how much detriment, like how much who who's so many people have been affected because of that because you haven't really updated these laws. And I think that that's kind of the I hope that the regulators kind of look at that, right? I mean, the, what is the harm if Uniswap all of a sudden turns on this fee? Like, is that is that all of a sudden like, do you treat it as security? And then what what happens? Like, you know, where is the harm being done in in crypto? Okay, of course there's scams. There's like outward ponzi's. Like this happens in every market. Like that's as fraud as fraud. Like no matter where you find it. But um, I do sometimes wonder, like, what is the benefit of treating something a security or a commodity? Like like you know, like I feel like it creates so much like friction and, and would create like it, it's sort of unnecessary, I think, in many in many ways. Yeah. And accreditation is actually a really good example because the reason you could imagine like ex ante, the reason accreditation rules exist is because if you're going to invest in a private entity, for example, there's like a fixed high upfront fixed cost to that investment and from both the company side and, and your side. And so then the amount of money you have to put in in order to do it is high. Right. And so then if somebody is below a certain net worth, then the implied percentage of their portfolio they have to expose to this risky asset is high. But if you take the friction out, if you reduce that fixed cost and you reduce it a lot. And so suddenly somebody can can actually distribute a bunch of, you know, um, bets that are proportional to their portfolio and appropriate given their desire for returns. Like they they are appropriately mm-hmm. balanced within kind of the total net worth. Then having some kind of like you have to be above a certain net worth in order to invest rule just 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 it's wrong. <laughs> it 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 it's, it's basically rough, like, yeah. you know, you're only allowed to get returns if you're already wealthy. Uh, and and so so you can imagine like the initial reason to do that is because of the high fixed cost and burdens of the existing mm-hmm. system as it existed. And all of innovation is driving that friction out. And so then those high fixed costs disappear. And then you just have a set of rules where oh, if you have a certain amount of money, you're allowed to make this investment and you can still make it very small if you want. And if you're below that amount of money, even though it's right size for your portfolio, you're not allowed. And that's wrong. Guys, let me let me pivot the conversation away from the regulatory side of things, but stick with Uniswap because there's another. I think the more interesting thing here with Uniswap is actually the business model of these like tier one DeFi protocols, which is like, should they be these like public goods almost, or should they should they generate fees and should they have revenue and spit off hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year, right? And the problem with Uniswap today is that the value accrual there's like a broken value accrual mechanism, and so there are ways that you can consider doing this like. Uh, like licensing, right? Like uni licensing fees could be a significant revenue in the future. Uh, there's another thing, which is they could almost follow the DYDX model and move away from Ethereum, create, because there's this MEV that's getting uh, uh, mm-hmm. accumulated, but it goes back to the Ethereum chain. They could create, uni could create their own chain. I think uni could also, I, I, I've heard that Uniswap is working on their own consumer app, right? So they could create their own app. Uh, and almost like lock users in that way, compete with Coinbase, but then they kind of lose the DeFi side of things. So I'm curious, Santi, I don't know if you've thought a lot about just like these, these maybe not so much with Uniswap uh, specifically, but like the Aves and Unis and Makers, like are these public mm-hmm. goods or like do they need to figure out a business model that makes them long-term sustainable here? And if so, like what is that business model? 
I wouldn't necessarily agree that their business model is broken. I mean, Uniswap cranks out fees. You're just not distributing to holders. And I think there is value in governing over that. Uh, if you're Aave, for instance, there is a place and a need for a token to govern risk parameters. Now, of course, maybe it's sort of not everyone should be voting on that. Maybe you should have a better system to manage that. But there is value in governing over these DeFi protocols. I wouldn't necessarily characterize them as kind of broken business models, of course. Or maybe, maybe the business models, bro- if, if, in, in any sort of financial services platform, fees ultimately go to zero. And you're seeing that with the Coinbase's of the world right um, now. Like You got to imagine fees go to zero with Uni. Um, so then does it become really. like a... Not really. No, no I, I sort of disagree with that. This is like, there's some folks out there that like, look at what happened in the internet. Says, there is a lot of public good infrastructure. There is a cost to upgrading and maintaining open source networks. You know, Google giving employees the subsidizing a couple hours a week for them to work and tinker on open source stuff. I mean, there, there's a cost. You just kind of don't see it or like, it's not necessarily as tangible, sort of goodwill, if you will. But the whole premise of why like crypto is pretty awesome is the idea to tokenize something and, and allow you to capture value in other parts of the stack that weren't possible before. You know, like, like if you look at the internet, like most of the value accrued to the sliver of kind of more front facing app protocols and those sort of companies, Facebook's of the world and Google is it just sort of utilized to your point, a lot of infrastructure that, you know, doesn't like, you know, didn't accrue value, but you can tokenize now and create the possibility to, to kind of con- reward people that are contributing to these networks um so i i don't think that like there, there's there's a common fallacy i think to like like use analogies and how things happened before and say this is the way where three is going to develop and i think that look it helps people understand something new but i don't but i think you sometimes something need to unshackle yourself from like that that kind of like analogy and say it can be different this time like in how things develop and so I do think that there's going to value, value will be accruing to DeFi protocols. Yes, there is a lot of MEV that goes to like, there's an interesting perhaps discussion around, are you better off investing in the L1, i.e. Ethereum, because that's where MEV ultimately accrues with the IP5059 and all that, or should you be buying the governance token? I think that's a more perhaps interesting discussion. We had it with the guys at Multicoin that had the view that more value is going to accrue to the L1 versus DeFi. And look, DeFi has been in a kind of like, I think it was right now where DeFi's really traded pretty down over the last like year and a half. So, but I don't I don't necessarily look at that and say DeFi is broken, it's dead, it's, it's going to be a public good. And I don't also agree that fees will go to zero. There is value in using a trusted provider solution, i.e., Uniswap, over your other fork that may be absolute garbage. Well, and by fees go to zero, I mean, you would still need to be providing fees to the liquidity providers, right? You're just saying, or Yana, you're just saying that the fees accruing to the protocol might compress to zero, right? I'm saying that on all fin- on most financial platforms, whether it's like the old school, like the platforms that were built in the 90s, like the TD Ameritrades and, e- and E-Trades of the world, or more modern day, uh, like stock buying platforms. Platforms like this those. Was the thing. When Robin when Robinhood launched, everyone said, "Oh, it's going to totally kill every other kind of uh, Schwab and TD Ameritrade and all this stuff." The reality is, this that was not true. I mean, there's a lot of. Well, again, I'm not, say, I'm not saying that it kills them. I'm just saying, like, I'm for users. Like, okay, so if you're a platform, no, you have to but, acquire but users. You have to understand that the the apparent fees might go to zero, but the actual extracted value 
still remains. As in, like, take Robinhood doing payment for order flow, right? Where, like, so there, for, for a company where there's some fixed cost of doing business, right, you have to, like, generate revenue in excess of that to still exist as a company, at yeah. least over a sustainable duration. For a protocol, like, you, you know, to attract the um, basically the liquidity for a decentralized exchange, you have to be paying out some something to the totally, liquidity totally. providers, and and you will continue to have to. And I think the question or an interesting question is if you are sitting at the governance token level, like you said, Santiago, Santi, uh, is that uh, is that um, that that there's some value in being able to govern. What's the value in being able to govern if you're not generating some slice of the fees? Well, the value is that somehow I can affect the fees in a way that personally rewards me at the expense of others in some way. So in, if you're not, I you could argue, if you're not spitting out some kind of thing into the governance token itself, then it incentivizes, then it means the person that's going to own the governance token is going to be the person that can, you know, drive a vote in some way that gets them a lot of personal stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, this is the example. This is obvious, right? There was a hack that happened last week where there was a the ability to upgrade the contract with a lot of governance to like this person effectively up to and drain like the community fund out of 6 million and then totally dump the tokens and then pocketed a million. Um, I think the interesting thing is these governance attacks or let's call it just this governance kind of the ability to influence certain, uh, you know, like decisions and upgrade a particular protocol or modify a risk parameter that might be beneficial to you is interesting in the context where, you almost are left wondering, cause switching costs. I think this is what you're getting at, Jason, which is switching costs are very low in crypto. You can go to Uniswap and then go to any if Uniswap all of a sudden by governance ends up doing, you know, voting in certain things that affect the user. Then you you sure as hell know that there's going to be an almost immediate response from a lot of people to go to another provider. And there's just no, it's seamless to kind of move uh, and use different parts of the ecosystem. In traditional finance, going back to the Robinhood example, you know, people switching bank accounts, people don't like to think about this. Like, it's almost crazy, but, it, but people don't like to think about money or who they're banking with. And opening a bank account takes time. Issuing, getting a mortgage takes time. These are all kind of frictions that, that like will be stripped out of the system in a very material way. And I think you're seeing it in, in crypto and DeFi in particular. And so I, you're left wondering like how will, and this is maybe a topic like I don't, we don't should rant on this, but how much of like consumer behavior is going to change, um, particularly in finance, because you're radically compressing a lot of friction that has existed in traditional finance by regulation, by jurisdiction. Like we talk about shit coins in crypto. I mean, there's like all these kinds of shit coins and they're called the Zimbabwe dollar, the Chilean peso, the Mexican peso. Can we just have Bitcoin instead? Like, I mean, in a very extreme case. So anyways, <laughs> this is why initially, no, no, like, no, no, I, this, is, this is why I think like I became interested and built the DeFi thesis uh, way back in the day because I felt that there is probably no better, like when you see friction, and you sure as hell know, like, you don't have an Amazon-like experience with finance. There will come a time where you can do that. And I think crypto is, like, uniquely enabling that. But anyways. Let, let, me, let, me, turn, let me ask a question here. So, so I like what you're saying, Santi. So, like, less frictions, more efficiency. Uh, so, like, right now, there's maybe I have my money with Bank of America or Wells Fargo. That's not the best place to do it. But, like, it's a total pain in the ass to move my money and create a new bank account with, that has a higher interest rate. When you decrease frictions capital, it creates capital efficiencies. So, like, when I have, uh, 
because my wall, my money's now in 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 uh, in my MetaMask or like Web three wallet, I can move it around really really efficiently. Liquidity providers' main incentive to take on an impermanent loss risk is the return on investment from trading fees. Right now, those returns are already quite small, and they've been getting smaller since DeFi summer. I would argue. Um, when you take those fees away from them, in a hyper efficient capital world, those LPs are probably then incentivized to move mm -hmm. somewhere else. Yeah, correct. Um, now again, if going back to what Brett was saying, if you if you have a thesis that all this volume is going to come, right? Then yeah. then even though the percentage fee might go down, I mean you're sort of playing a volume game, and you might be indifferent between holding two assets. And so the impermanent loss concept is something that a lot of folks. Coming from traditional finance, say, wait a minute, this is never going to work. Uniswap is not going to work. A lot of folks passed on the idea of having an AMM because they said the order book model is just highly more efficient. Like, we don't need to reinvent finance here, guys. Lo and behold, you sort of, again, this is consumer behavior. Like, you have to think about, like, from first principles, how is this going to, like, you're allowing anyone to be a market maker. And there's a pocket of investors and token holders that say, I'm actually different between two assets. And so the idea of impermanent loss, while is mathematically correct, it misses the point that there are some investors in some market environments that actually providing liquid, like being an LP is great. Like your app, like cost everything up or down a particular asset. And so it might be a really efficient strategy to accumulate a particular token without trying to time the market while you're earning some fees to offset that. So I think like yeah. this idea of, of, again, by analogy, you look at the order book model and say, that's perfect. It's better mathematically. I get it. But it doesn't factor in this idea of it is it is democratizing access, being a liquidity provider, being a market maker for so many people that historically have not been able to. And so that that in and of itself creates a lot of value for different people. Um, and yes, creates a lot of consumer surplus for sure. But there's still value being created and accruing somewhere. It just doesn't like go to zero, I think. I, I think one last thought here is uh, on, on the, actually, I think there's one other thing, which is um, capital allocation. Brett, I'm going to turn this into a question to you about DAOs, but the, pref the, the lead up to the question is, I think there's a capital allocation problem here. And I think we're seeing that with, with, um, with DAOs, right? Like one, if you look at a centralized company, one of the most important things a CEO has to be good at is capital allocation. Capital al is allocated into three buckets at a company. Organic growth, right? You build new products and services that are developed by the company. Second bucket is inorganic growth, like M&A basically. Third bucket would be share buybacks. Share buybacks happen at larger companies where they can't figure out organic growth. They can't figure out the inorganic growth. They typically happen when you have a bunch of cash and you can't figure out how to grow your uh, appreciate the stack by doing M&A or by growing it inorganically. So you're basically going to buy back the shares and reduce the float. When If you look at the governance forums in Uniswap, there's a lot of pushback that if you're going to create taxes or fees that make you less competitive, less capital efficient, you should probably, this is a quote, you should probably have a rigorous plan of how you wish to spend those funds. But there's no it's taken them a long time to, to put that together because you've got this DAO model. I've been spending a lot of time in the MakerDAO forums recently, and it's it's for anyone who spent time in the Maker forums, it's been a bit of a shit show recently. So I'm curious, Brett, to just get your take on DAOs. Are they the future? How, how like, what are your maybe, I don't know if you, how, how much you guys have been looking at the governance side of DAOs, but curious to get your take on them. Well, I think like broadly, direct democracy is a poor way to make decisions in, in a dynamic environment. And so how do you, you know, like what we look for in management teams 
is um, typically, uh, you know, a founder uh, CEO who can um, steer the ship with a lot of agility, right? And it's because the 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 pace of change is accelerating across all sectors. You know, in a, uh, technology is is just like basically turning up the the, the world's pulse rate uh, in 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 a profound way. Uh, and so then I think there's a call it an open question within kind of DeFi world. <laughs> um, to, does like are you forced to have a DAO in order to be decentralized? But then does that it both exposes you to kind of like a bunch of um, risks of people operating on their own behalf within that distributed governance structure? And then does it slow down and and kind of like calcify your ability to? Um, make decisions and remain competitive. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that in some ways it's it's like the the glory of Bitcoin in terms of its like both positioning within the marketplace and the specific thing it's trying to displace is actually profound conservatism is better to win the race of money. And so having, you know, a governance that can't like it requires massive kind of effort to to kind of shift people off of the asset to change the way it works, you know, um, is is net better for that opportunity. But if you are operating in a space where there are protocols being venture funded because they're going after kind of different areas that where they feel like the market is being disserved, where there's like a lot of competing even layers in the value chain, um, it, I would guess that leaving aside the regulation side, <laughs> the, 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 the protocols that are being run by someone who's like, well, this is the vision, this is what we're going to do, are, are going to um, win. And uh, so, so then the balance is like, how long can you continue to do that without crossing afoul of securities law and everything else? Uh, if you have to, in some way, like get to decentralization in order to be considered not a security in order to actually do all the things that protocol should be able to do. I think it's a hard question. So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's like anybody who's, you know, had a condo board or anything like this is a recipe for not getting things done is having a lot of people with input on it and, and um, kind of like, or, or a recipe for like concealing where the true power lies, where somebody basically like Sybil attacks the governance thing and like accrues a bunch of nodes so they have voting power so they can force things through. And then then it's really decentralized, not truly decentralized. And so I just don't know how you kind of like pair off or match those two things. Yeah. I want to pivot away from uni for a second, away from DAOs. There's one other DAO thing, just maybe just because this is a roundup, I want to say just one thing I'm paying attention to. Uh, Lido is debating selling Lido from their treasury to Dragonfly for DAI to diversify their treasury. There seems to be this debate about the discount price used, uh, the amount of Lido sold, lockup period. Lido is ripping. It's up 60% on the week. Uh, just, I would, if, I would, if folks are listening to this, I would pay attention to just what's going on with Lido Dragonfly. I think it's a really interesting conversation around DAOs trying to get capital in the bear market and and diversifying their treasury. Uh, it's funny, like you've you've noticed that you know when a company sells equity, like they raise their Series A and C, or Series B or whatever it is. There's a lot of excitement. It's like, all right, this company's booming. When a DAO sells their own tokens, which is effectively almost like a Series A or Series B or something, it's like, why is this DAO selling their own tokens? That's negative. Um, so I don't know. I think that's, I don't know if either of you guys have been paying attention to that, but I just want to call that yeah, out. I would right. recommend, we can put a link to the. 
mm-hmm. to the forum. The initial proposal got rejected. Um, uh, right. There was, of course, a precedent of them doing it, selling it to Paradigm way back in the day, and then other investors as well. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think like it's interesting because there's this hot old mentality in crypto that I think is very toxic at times, which is, look, certain investors have, because, look, everything's on chain, so you can monitor these flows and everything. But, you know, you sort of, we either glorify hodl mentality and then vilify people that like take, you know, are essentially trying to manage risk. And uh, this is actually a question that I wanted to ask you, Brett, which is when you do research and if you're deep in the weeds, like it's hard not to get excited about technology, like just full stop, whether it's crypto or just technology is what gets the human race out of trouble in the last minute and like pushes us forward. The problem is that how do you marry like excited about technology with actually like price and having a view on price because at some point it does really matter i ascribe to the view of when you actually enter a position like you know things can be it could be a great company but a terrible investment or a, a terrible company and a great investment so price largely kind of dictates that and crypto of course you are in full price discovery even a bitcoin and no one has there's no like p ratios and all this stuff like and so it's hard, like narratives, like, you know, what you think can happen in 10 years happens in three months. And you're like, oh, wait, like, what happens? Like, you essentially need to manage risk, right? Should a game that a gaming company in crypto that hasn't produced anything be valued at, like, on a fully diluted basis of like 5 billion? Absolutely not. And so I'm curious, Brad, how do you how do you like manage like doing research? And, and then like saying, okay, and being excited about all this and then saying, well, actually, it might not be a good time to invest on this. And like like the investor side of your brain and then the research kind of more intellectual side of it. Well, I think the two are, are actually quite closely coupled in, in that often we will do research on at the technology level and be like, OK, this is not it's either it's this is not going to happen in a time horizon that makes sense for us or it's kind of like, OK, we've done all this research and then we basically like you know, turn over the page and see what other people have done. And like, oh, our perspective on this market is relatively similar to the markets. And so kind of, we don't have an edge. It's probably all embedded mm. uh, in the securities mm-hmm. themselves. So from the top down level, that's a comparison we do all the time, like given our expectations for cost declines and um, unit economics and different sectors, you know, what's this market going to look like? And then where are we relative to everybody else who have used, you know, some other, i argue flawed methodology. And if we're in the same spot, then it's like, okay, I don't need to do more work on that. So that happens to us with some frequency. And we have to celebrate that. Like the analysts should be encouraged to like do the work and, and, you know, deciding not to invest is as valuable as deciding to invest. Uh, Then at the security, the individual company level, um, we, we take the company's five years forward and, and we say, what is the cash flow generativeness of this business five years forward? And if I were a forced seller to not me, but to a techno pessimist who's only paying for that cash flow at that margin structure with that capital intensity, what would they pay? And so historically, that's always been like massive multiple compressions to our expectations for the company. In the current moment, with some of them, it's like, oh, well, they're already kind of at a fair <laughs> A fair, fair, um, you know, cash flow generative multiple, uh, and so then we have massively differentiated expectations for top line growth, and so then we think that they're great investments. So, but there, I think it's it's very, I think people don't do the work to quantify things enough when they get excited about things. Like, um, 
like fuel cells. Like they, it is demonstrable that like fuel cells aren't going to become cost competitive with consumer vehicles um, within at least until early 2030s. And that even conditional on like a passenger fuel cell vehicle doing Toyota Prius like volumes from here to there in terms of like manufacturing scaling. So it's not going to happen. Uh, but that doesn't stop kind of people to be like fuel cells are the future and all these fuel cell companies are great. And, and then you look at how they're valued and you have to embed an expectation that fuel cells get into passenger vehicles for it to it all work. Uh, and, and so, and even at the P, you know, when the EV IPOs and, and SPACs were coming out, like some of them we really liked and we assessed. Um, but like Rivian, for example, you know, it's a great brand and company, but we can't make the valuation work at all uh, unless you have a, a aggressive view on their ability to deliver autonomous on top of their platform, which they don't really have credible plans for. Uh, and so then you just say, okay, well, well, we'll wait till it comes to a price where it hits our return on capital target. Um, so like, um, I think, I think, Completing the work is actually translating it into the economic value because whether or not the technology is going to come to fruition is in part contingent upon it being able to motivate capital into its continued development. Uh, so you have to be able to make that case, I think, for for to even be excited about the technology. Um, and you don't get them all right. So it's like you do all of that work and you're like, okay. Uh, and and then it turns out, oh, you're wrong on kind of like the friction in this point or commercialization friction is often a, a huge challenge. Uh, and so um, the the I, I think it, it it's an important discipline to to at least operating how we try to operate in the marketplace where we try to, you know, put out our research. We take long term um, positions and points of view and then try to like aggressively allocate client assets to technologies that are um, massively misunderstood today. Um, and I, I, I do think a lot of people think that technology investing is as good as like EVs are going to be great. And so I'm going to invest in every company that says EV. And then you just ride this huge type cycle without kind of being selective at all. So then the other thing we do is it's like, balancing between technologies. Right now, everything is is subject to the, the voting game. So all the technologies have traded down and traded up, but but there's um, actually more diversification benefit to um, diversifying across technologies than there is diversifying across sectors, at least according to, to our research. And so um, like you're better off having like a, a technology di diversification than you are sector diversification. Uh, and so that's how we manage kind of like the internal risk of like, in individual forecast in our portfolio being wrong. Brett, speaking of the uh, the hype cycle, we have reached the most hyped part of the episode, which is the rapid fire, the ending, which uh, puts a puts a smile on Santi's face. Santi, you want to uh, <laughs> you yeah. want to you want to put uh, Brett on the spot and uh, get in some rapid fire to to close this off? Yeah. So the rules are try to uh, five like five ten second responses. So um, you know, so there we go. Uh, first question: How many hours of sleep do you get? Between seven and eight. Wow. Uh, Santi, you, 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 uh, you always say wow to that. Are you getting like four hours of sleep a night? Like what are you? Uh... <laughs> Man, anyone in crypto, does, if you get more than seven <laughs> hours and you're in crypto, I literally need to research your brain because, yeah. <laughs> I've gotten I've gotten a lot more diligent about sleep hygiene. Like if you think, I think I think it, mm. it affects mental, athletic, everything performance. So um, I would encourage you to, there's a great book called Why We Sleep, which takes me to the next second question. Any 
What's like the most interesting book you've read recently or, or piece of content? Um, I'm right now reading um, the, well, Political Order and Political Decay, but before that, The Rise of Political Order, Origins of Political Order by Francis Fukuyama. That's Fuki, that's uh, Francis Fukuyama. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that was supposed to be a five second answer, but it's a good book. And it's like thinking about how crypto assets can, can spur a new, like, uh, a, a catalyze a new kind of political order is the context in which mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. Uh, is the dollar, will the dollar be replaced by something else, Bitcoin or another currency in the next five to 10 years? Uh, it depends on your definition of replaced. As, as like the, 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 the preferred kind of store value. The global like, reserve I, I mean, like, well, preferred store value. Currency. Yeah, unit of the, account. Not store value, like the gold yeah, I think, unit account. I think ten years would be too aggressive to say it'll be displaced as a unit of account in ten years, but I think that its displacement is inevitable over a multi-decade time horizon. I, I don't think there's nothing there's there's nothing so special about the U.S. that you would you know expect mm-hmm. that our economic system will be the the pivot on which the world turns over meaningful time mm-hmm. horizons. Yeah, have we as inflation peaked? Yes. And then feel free to give a more than longer response here, but what is that? What is it something, what is something that you wish you knew early on in your career as an investor or researcher that you know now? I think when you first like get into in, um, investing, particularly in technology, it's easy to dismiss kind of like distribution and commercialization friction. And so I think the, the, um, I don't know. I actually, I don't know the end. Do I wish, you know, uh, yeah, I really don't know. You're more like, what, you're more like you, you, you encourage everyone to learn by trial and yeah, error yeah. to learn to know what they're good at and not. And that's a unique process or like, yeah, I mean, I, I, or I think the way that I've won and the way I encourage my analysts to win is just to always be in learning mode. Um, and so it's hard to like, maybe a, a recognition that you're always accreting knowledge and that knowledge pays you back over a compounding time frame, but I feel like that's something you that, mean like you never graduate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. No. And and I think that's really important. I mean, certainly it's important with yeah. crypto, and that's um, you know you mentioned Chris. I think I said to Chris as he was leaving, you you know you've demonstrated to me that you can very quickly appear to be an expert on a new topic. <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah. and but the reason why is because you know you're you're like all of these fields are so early. Um, in t- across technology, like the the technological frontier is advancing so rapidly that it's actually like the guy who got a PhD ten years ago is probably less expert than you because he's he's you know burnishes his credentials on the research piece he did ten years ago as opposed to trying to remain like right at that frontier of knowledge and and kind of learn and and just like to develop the knowledge in the individual area and to, and I think that's the um, and it's something that it kind of like uh, um, it compounds like your ability to take on new topics and then compress them into like, how does this work from a first principles perspective and then move to a different topic? Um, you get a lot better at that. Um, so, yes, I don't know what I would tell my old self to to like, I don't think I guess I guess the point is, I don't think it I can't compress it into something that I could deliver back. Do you know what I mean? Like compressing right. all of the things I've learned there. It's like mm-hmm. an accretion, not like a single insight. Right. And so then how do I compress right. it into a single thing that I deliver back without it being like trite and dumb? Mm. 
Brett, how do um one of the core values at Blockworks is just curiosity. How do you guys hire for people who are naturally curious or like just lifelong learners? Like, is there is that baked into your hiring process, and how do you do it? Um, well, we're not one hundred percent successful, but the I mean, I think that literally on like my hiring rubric, when I go through an interview with a care candidate, uh, intellectual curiosity, a score on that is one of the four things I track. So. How do you assess that? How do you how do you well, how do you quantify intellectual curiosity? Well, I mean, on a, a I think it's a seven star scoring system. Maybe I use a five star scoring system. Kind of. So yeah. it's very, it's subjective, yeah. and it's yeah. it's you know running right. a candidate through a, a case question of an, a topic that they're um, familiar with, and then a case question and a topic that's kind of like outside of their kind of core competency is my typical interviewing style, uh, and so. You put them in terrain where they think they know everything or they think they know a lot and try to get them to like, you know, try to basically like push them across a boundary where they actually, it turns out they don't and see how they react and see how kind of the interplay works and then put them in a terrain where they, you know, effectively know nothing and try to give them the basic information they need to try to construct the world as it exists in that separate terrain. Mm -hmm. um, and those, you know, that's. So I don't know if, do you have an idea of how to measure kind of um, curiosity? I used to, so I used to run recruiting kind of for my group at JP Morgan when I, way back in the day. And, and then I think one of the things, and this is advice I got from someone who was like going into my super day is oftentimes you will be asked questions where they don't expect you to know the answer to. And they're just assessing, do you have the, like, are you a sufficiently secure person with confidence to be humble enough to say, I don't know. Versus try to whiff, because right. if you whiff, that's a really big red flag. That's, I think, what gets you in trouble in investing. As Mark Twain famously said, it's not what you, what is it? It's not what you know, it's what you think you know, but ain't so. And I think that to me is where you really blow up as a fund, like a long-term right. capital management, the mortgage crisis, like this idea that housing prices can never go down. And so it's that like, I think that to me is if you're not humble enough to understand that there are unknown unknowns and factor into that, into your thinking you're at some point going to make a really bad assumption and mistake. So that's, that's how I, of course, I, I don't use a seven point system, but that's to me, the, one of the more important things. Yeah. But I, see, I also curiosity. think, I think there's like, it's two stroke in that there's one, people are naturally curious Two, a lot of like education and training, like tries to pound the curiosity out of people. Three, being curious is actually mm -hmm. really hard work and it's harder work as you get older. So you, you do need to like select for it in some way. So then four, you know, like typically people who have been through like analyst programs and investment banks that actually diminishes their curiosity, at least in my experience. So they tend to fail mm -hmm. out of our interviewing process a lot more frequently. Uh, and mm -hmm. the environment in which you work and operate that guides, you know, creating an environment that fosters curiosity is is as important as selecting people who are curious, right? And so, mm -hmm. um, kind of the, yeah, the one of the assessments during the interview is like, how much is the person, like you said, it's not just like swinging and whiffing. It's like, are they seeking mm -hmm. more information, of, like, and being meta aware of, okay, what is he trying to get at here, and where, right, right. you know, how can I kind of like, um, kind of show what I know and show what I'm capable of thinking while also understanding what the problem is that I'm being confronted with, mm -hmm. you know? I, I, so yeah. a lot of times people, particularly when I they're think, under pressure, they'll, they'll just like, you know, try to go on and on or try to, you know, they'll, they, they won't mm -hmm. have that 
kind of interplay, which is really important. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right in the point where uh, when you go to college or these programs, you get ranked. There's this like delayed grade gratification, i.e. the marshmallow test is really powerful because, you know, it's oftentimes, especially in investing, you have a scorecard. Everyone has a scorecard. You want to be right. You want to be rewarded for being right. But uh, to your point around compounding and accruing kind of these learnings, I think a lot of really intellectually curious people just always have that like innateness of just you're never kind of satisfied you're constantly in this trajectory it's and you never kind of reach an end state of like okay done i took the test i scored 100 or whatever i'm done it's more i what could i've like look back and say what could i have done differently to get maybe to the same result and sort of this constant like desire to to grow internally and do introspection i think is pretty key but yeah it's it's hard we've noticed um We've noticed that curiosity and passion are are very linked, right? So if someone is very passionate about something, like there's often the most passionate people are oftentimes the most curious people too. And they'll just- They're it, also maximalists, Jason. <laughs> and stick to Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, no, no, but I think Brett made a good point, which is like the older you get, the harder it is to stay curious because staying curious takes actually a shit ton of work. It means that after your work day, you have to- dive into like, you know, like, I don't know. I was like watching this YouTube video last night on like how MEV works. And like, that is a, um, that is, I don't know. I think the, the older you get, like the more, uh, responsibilities you have, the more like busy you get. Uh, and, and I think it's quite hard to, uh, to do that. And, and you only end up doing it if you're actually quite passionate about a topic. So even if it's not related to your work, we found that people who are inherently passionate about something will be, can, can find passion in something else. Good point. So, so much for a fire round. <laughs> I know. This is a hor- yeah, this is. Uh, yeah, we've so literally de- deviated from the the agenda and the plan and everything. But this is. Hey, we're all intellectually <laughs> curious, so we are allowed to go on these tangents. So, anyway, I'll stop talking. Brett, I want to wrap it with this one question. I'm going to tie it back to something Santiago said at the beginning of the conversation about Howard Marks. Uh, Howard had something else in his piece. He said, "I'm just going to read it here." He said, if your behavior and that of your managers is conventional, you're likely to get conventional results, either good or bad. Only if the behavior is unconventional is your performance likely to be unconventional. And only if the judgments are superior is your performance likely to be above average. Arc strikes me as someone who has always been very unconventional. What are you guys doing right now in the investing landscape uh, that you think is unconventional today, but is going to be seen as quite conventional five years from now? And what is something that you think everyone else is missing today that seems obvious to you? Well, I go back to, I think people misunderstand the value of transparency and research. As in, there's a lot of entities that have tried to duplicate what we're doing and they both, but just on a, hey, we're going to invest in aggressively in technology basis, but they don't enable their analysts to publish under their own names, don't let them operate on social media. And in fact, they think that that's like, marketing gimmick rather than something that delivers real value. I think you can see like the pace of change in crypto is so fast in part because the people are online and they're battling out these ideas and kind of they're putting out papers for people to respond to. And we're trying to do the same across all technology areas where by allowing the analysts to like generate a, a figure that they think is interesting, have it you know, pass through our internal process of like, oh, this is interesting. Why is this interesting? And then as frictionlessly as possible, um, kind of post it for response and to figure out where they're wrong and where they're right, just increases our velocity in terms of being able to get to 
um, unique insights in the world uh, and understand kind of like the building blocks that that lead up to those unique insights. And so like the thing that surprised me from inception to now, when we started, I thought I was just going to have a research team that would effectively duplicate the work that like McKinsey Global Institute and, and BCG had done, like end up at similar outcomes, but we would understand the mechanics better and so be able to invest on that basis. Um, what's happened instead is we've generated, I'd say, more accurate forecasts over meaningful time horizons than these teams that have like, you know, five PhDs on their papers and they have, you know, the 25 co-authors and, you know, these big, big uh, expensive research efforts that these consultancies put out. Um, and I think it's because we're like just on a much more rapid kind of uh, intellectual advance cycle by being transparent about what we're doing. The world is full of data. We have a massive abundance of data now. And so your job as somebody who's trying to learn about things is to figure out ways to tune the data into kind of the information specific for what you're working on. And the only way to do that is to like announce to the world, this is what I'm working on and provide them with nuggets of interest of what you're working on because then the world feeds all of that data towards you. Like, uh, and so you, you tune like, anyway, yeah. <laughs> sounds like you're doing uh, research from a, in an open source, distributed and more decentralized. And that is, I've always told people that you guys are probably one of the best, if not the best research shops out there. So uh, very true to the crypto ethos of open sourcing information and knowledge. Uh, so right. not surprised why you guys love, uh, we're one of the earlier ones to be very vocal about not just crypto, but other stuff as well. So yeah, yeah. kudos, kudos to you guys. Right. Brett, this was a great conversation, man. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, we'll, we'll link to your Twitter and, and ARC's website and stuff in the show notes. Uh, for anyone who's just listening, doesn't want to look at the show notes, it's at W-I-N-T-O-N, ARC, Winton ARC. Um, anything else you want to plug before we uh, wrap this up, Brett? Uh, we're putting out a, a Bitcoin monthly now. Uh, Yassine and team put that together. It's a great um, look at both kind of what's happened over the last month and um, some DeFi metrics, some custom to ARC. Um, we have David Puel on the team who, who, you know, in, I think coined slash invented, um, it, um, market value to realize value ratios. And, and so doing a lot of on-chain research and, and development of, of metrics and new ways to analyze on-chain data in, in Bitcoin. I encourage everyone to check it out. It's a great, quick read. Great. Amazing. Brett, thanks so much. Santi has always been a pleasure. And I will see you guys on next week's episode of Empire. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Brad. Take care.